Hello and welcome to Movement Disorder Podcast. I am Danish Bahati. This week podcast will focus on Parkinson disease and to talk about it today on our show, we have the great Dr. John Bertoni himself. Dr. Bertoni is professor of neurology and director of Parkinson's Disease Clinic at University of Nebraska Medical Center or UNMC. Dr. Bertoni has been in the forefront of all the advances in Parkinson's disease in the last two decades. He has seen them all and done it all. He helped develop all the drugs we have on the market for Parkinson's disease. His patients are his die-hard fans and would not see anyone else even if they have to wait for two years for a follow-up. I have a great personal fondness for him as I have been personally groomed by him. He has been my mentor in Parkinson's disease and I still cannot pull off what he does with his patients. Today we'll talk to him about Parkinson's disease over the decades. What we know about PD has remarkably grown over the last 20 years to a point where it's bursting at its seams. We'll go on a ride on the memory lane with John himself. It is my true pleasure and great honor to have him on the show. John, please tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us one thing that you think no one would know about your career in movement disorders. Well, Danish, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to see your career grow. I know we've worked together for many years, and I first saw your CV when you were applying for residency, <laughs> and I was impressed and pushed you to the front of the line as much as I could. And I'm very proud of what you're doing and where you're going. I grew up in Michigan, which is an outdoor kind of state. It's surrounded by Great Lakes, uh-huh. has more lakes in it than Minnesota does, and we don't have to put it on our license plate. <laughs> I grew up and uh, studied whatever I could. I knew all the sounds of the birds with my little friend when I was about seven or eight. Uh, we sang songs together. We, uh, he went to be an ENT surgeon. And we learned all about the wildlife surrounding us. Mm -hmm. So I had an idyllic kind of upbringing, I think. Uh, In 1957, Sputnik was rotating in orbit around the Earth. Uh Uh-huh. Launched by Russia. Launched by Russia. And that was when everybody decided we need to catch up. And that's how I got really pushed into science. I see. That I attended in high school, took courses, took tests, and went to a national competition Uh for physicists and mathematicians and scientists. And I went into a scientific uh, course of study through high school, and then I had a broader education in college and had an uncle that showed me what it was like to be a doctor, and I followed in his footsteps. He actually was a boyhood friend of President Jimmy Carter Hmm. in Georgia. Interesting. But I can go on and on about this. I'm sure. The thing that really got me interested in neurology was in my medical school, University of Michigan. They were doing a new course, kind of like we're doing now. We're getting the first and second year medical students involved in neuroscience. Uh And when I saw patients being presented for the first time, I just fell in love with neurology. And the inspiring teachers that I had, movement disorder specialists in particular, uh, brought me to where I am today. 
So it's been a lot of fun, and I can't believe they're paying me for this. I know you've been doing Parkinson's disease and really built up the Parkinson's disease um, care in Nebraska over the last 20 years. Um, tell us how you got started with Parkinson's disease and why you find it so fascinating that you did nothing else for the last 10, 20 years. Well, my wife wouldn't say I did nothing else because she had a long list of things for me to do, and I took care of many other kinds of illnesses too. But no, it has been my focus, and it's interesting. Ken McGee, who was an outstanding researcher and clinician, was giving a lecture on Parkinson's disease. Hmm. And he said, don't worry, we have the cure. And I said, well, this is great. We have a neurological condition. There's actually a cure. And he said, levodopa is now available. And I said, well, that's great. I'll learn everything I can about this because I like treating things we know all about, and that's uh -huh. all we need to know. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, that was just the beginning. We're replacing something that the body doesn't have enough of because of the dopamine cell death that we run into in Parkinson's. So from that point on, I learned to understand that some of these claims are not always true, but nevertheless, I was fascinated by how do we make movements? How do, if we think about it, how do we know each other people, mm. each other as people? Mm. And it's, really through their movements mm. and our movements. It's the expression on her face that we see. It's the sound of the voice that we hear. It's how they write or type or use Braille. So all of human communication, all of literature, science, the arts, is really about movement. I mean, if we were just not communicating, had no way to communicate, what would there be? There would be no civilization. So. It's all about movement, and the disorders of movement are as important as anything can be. You know, you've, uh, you talked about back when you heard from Ken McGee on how we thought that levodopa was the cure for Parkinson, the next biggest thing in movement disorders. And now, uh, you know, there was a time when we thought stem cell was the next big thing, and we have a cure. How do you see the changes in our approach or understanding of Parkinson's disease over the years? How are, how are we now compared to 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Over the years, there's been times of optimism and times of pessimism, mm. like anything else. It's two things. Number one, how do we manage the people and give them the highest quality of life for the longest possible duration for those who actually now have Parkinson's disease. The second thing is, how do we prevent everyone else from getting it? It's like polio. When I was a boy, there was a great fear that we couldn't even go out where there were people in public. Mm. We couldn't go to swimming pools because of a polio epidemic. Mm. Again, just before, a few years before Sputnik. Mm when the vaccines came out and the trials were headed at University of Michigan. Uh -huh. And my uncle who had such a big uh, influence on me was a pediatrician, head of pediatrics at Michigan. And I saw that the vaccine would prevent people from getting polio. Someday we will have a way of preventing Parkinson's mm. disease or delaying it long enough so that it doesn't really matter because we may not live that long. So really there's two things. 
How do you manage somebody that has a disease? Secondly, how do you eliminate the disease? Research is now going to the front end, mm. and we're trying to prevent or postpone. We're now using big data, but what are we going to do for the people that have Parkinson's? How do we help them? So those things will still remain. So looking back now, can you think of times where something f- seemed so fashionable, such a rage, but now seems very foolish when we look back at it in Parkinson's care? Yes. An article in the New England Journal of Medicine that uh, Madrazo was the first author uh-huh. on, where the idea was you take someone's own tissue from their adrenal gland where uh, cells make dopamine right. and transplant them into the patient's own caudate nucleus. And he had a series of patients that were not controlled, which is an important thing. And the success was amazing. I heard him talk. I went up afterwards and talked with him. I was very impressed with this man. And I know uh, Abe Lieberman was one of his fans. He believed in this. He was, I think, the reviewer. Uh, And I've spoken with Abe many, many times. I actually traveled with him. Mm. There was an example of something that became really hot and fashionable. But they had no control group. No control group. And in retrospect, so many things like this, you look back and you find out if you really look carefully, there's something dangerous about it or this could be a placebo effect. And Mm. we have to consider that. So how can you have a placebo effect for this? Uh, How can you test for that? And so sham operations became one of the things that we use to find out about it. Patient doesn't know. People read from a script in the OR. They make a sound as if they may even put a burr hole in, mm. but nothing else happens. I see. So these things are ways you can get around that. So we had a patient in Philadelphia where I was at Jefferson then. He had the procedure, and the press hounded me. We're famous. We did it first. And I said, why don't we wait and see how the patient does first? <laughs> and they thought I was just crazy. And it turned out the patient didn't do well postoperatively. And in retrospect, he was not a good candidate for he was kind of too infirm already, too sick. Mm. Um, So that's already I was cautious at that point. There was a time when I think the dopamine agonist came out new in the market, late 80s, early 90s. And then they would, there were initial studies showing less dyskinesias with them, for example. Mm-hmm. And then some experts really became a big fan of it. And there was a big dopamine uh, craze as the first line of therapy for many years. And there was almost like a levodopa hate for a while. Were you ever part of it, what you thought back then? Well, actually, as you were mentioning earlier, I was involved actually when Ron Pfeiffer was here. He was actually the one that began... Uh, doing these here in Omaha, studies on uh, ropinirol and um, pramipexol. And I took over those when Ron left. Uh, Ron was a giant, actually. He was the one that really established Parkinson's disease in Nebraska. And uh, he's gone on to be an editor and has done fine work throughout his career. Uh, I was cautious then I had been around the block enough to know that let's wait and see. Things come and go. You hear selegiline is a wonderful thing. It's going to uh, Berkmeyer, who in Vienna 
was one of the first people to find agents that were good for Parkinson's. And actually things like apomorphine and um, some of the dopamine agonists were tried first by him. There's an argument about who used levodopa first. But his son actually came. I had dinner with his son, mm. who was a big believer in selegiline. And it was supposed to be something to prevent the disease entirely. And there was a thought that resagiline would be easily proven to be something that would postpone or... Um, slow down. Barking. Slow down the disease, yes. Slow it yeah. down. And again, these are propositions and hypotheses are made to be proven or disproven. So I've learned the scientific method is what our best uh, defense is. Now, talking about courage, why do so many of us think that you don't want to give any medications to your patient? I find that individuals have the disease, and they are not like everybody else. You know, you see a patient with Parkinson's, some don't have tremors. And you say, well, where's your tremor? Or I've had patients with very severe tremors, and then 10, 15 years later, I'm looking through my notes, and you don't have any tremor. And the person will say, well, I used to have a tremor, but it's kind of gone away. So these things really, really change over time. And um, I think it's important, know the patient, encourage the patient to do everything the patient can do, take charge of the illness, I then propose then, once they get fit, once they get exercising, then we'll give them medication. I use it as, if I'm just going to give them pills and they won't take care of themselves, I think that's bad medicine. So I encourage them and I do use it as, and I find that if I keep on giving them for every time they're having oh, a life crisis and they're tremoring more, I'm not doing them a good service. I want to make sure it's wu-wei. And I remember our discussions and arguments about this. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, let them get over the loss of a loved one or they're going through a lot of stress. They're sick in other ways. And, you know, I found it works better. Mm. And when they need it, sure, we give them all they need. What is the most exciting thing about Parkinson's disease in the recent years? Well, let's see. Uh, I could answer that in the positive or the negative. <laughs> I think the fact that we have more information available now that we, the Parkinson study group and all the cooperative studies that are now gathering a lot of data, we're learning more about the risk factors. And so I think number one is we have collectively a lot more information than we used to uh, for risk factors because I think Prevention is what you do to treat diseases, and we tend to get end stage. The good news is we have more information. Hopefully, we can start preventing things, but the bad news is that's going to take decades because mm. it's such a slow process. What would be some helpful tips and tricks you will have for the residents for managing or diagnosing Parkinson's disease? I think the first one would be establish a personal relationship with your patient. It's not just somebody you have your back to and you're typing in the electronic medical record. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Those days hopefully will be gone and we'll have, be able to interact, we'll have a scribe so that you can do your job and your job is not to type mm. 150 words a minute. 
you need to make a connection with the patient, find out why they're here. Because if they're here just because they want you to tell them they don't have Parkinson's disease, then you can do all you want, but you're going to disappoint them. So, and then find out what makes them tick. What do they care about? What is there to live for? I think once you establish a connection, I, I believe this firmly, they don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. And if you make a connection with them, they're going to be good. They're going to listen to you more. They'll do the right things. Mm. Hopefully, you know the right things. In the end, John, I want to ask you, I want to put you on the spot here and ask you, if I, if I say, tell me about the most interesting patient you had with Parkinson's disease, which patient comes to your mind? When we do deep brain stimulation uh, and such procedures, Jim Terran in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I was involved as many of his cases as I can. He had an apartment in Paris and was studying with the greats in Paris as well. That was when the lesions were destructive. And I remember helping him out, and I was the one that would touch the patient's hand, and you could hear the sound of fibers in the thalamus. Mm. I've been fortunate to see, and that's when we had tubes and not transistors. I mean, I'm telling you, you turned it on and you had to wait a while before it warmed up. So <laughs> I've been uh, you know, blessed to be in a time of great change, and now we have a whole lot more we can offer people. This was very exciting. Thank you so much for being with us on today's show, John. There's so much more to talk about Parkinson's disease, and I know we have not even scratched the surface yet. Um, I hope we can have you back on the show soon for another great episode. But thank you. Glad to help. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you're as thrilled as I am about today's episode. Your feedbacks and suggestions are highly appreciated. So write to us at unmc.mdpodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at danishbody underscore MD. That's at D-A-N-I-S-H-B-H-A-T-T-I underscore MD. Hope to see you next time. Ciao, ciao.